This episode of the Zealous Podcast is sponsored by Perform Better. Perform Better is the leader in functional training by supplying innovative products and top-notch education to trainers, coaches, and therapists. Check out the brand new Perform Better app designed for professionals who want to stay on top of their game. This free app features education from the world's best. You'll learn from industry leaders including Mike Boyle, Gray Cook, Sue Falzoni, Charlie Weincroft, and many more. Topics range from strength and conditioning, program design, nutrition, business, and marketing. Just go to performbetter.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm Rocky Snyder, and in the house with me is Rob Campbell. He's the strength conditioning coach for the Detroit Red Wings. And before that, he was with the St. Louis Blues, and in between those periods, the New York Mets. And, he, well, he's been in the world of strength conditioning for a little bit, so he's got a lot to share. Rob, welcome to Zealous. Hey, thanks for having me, Rocky. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, man. First, uh, the thing I want to know uh, is with strength conditioning, I, I talked to other coaches and and uh, one of them in particular recently just said, you know, it's it's there's no difference between one sport and the other. Most of the time you have a ball and you're throwing it or you're catching it or you're using a stick or you're not. But a lot of it comes down to the same basic move. So when it comes to like being with the New York Mets, which being a New Englander, I can't believe you actually went with the Mets to begin with. <laughs> Because I don't know if you were born in 1986 or were around then, but I still have some really painful memories of the Red Sox losing game six and seven in the World Series. But anyway, we'll go beyond that. With the Mets and with the Red Wings and Blues, like they're all using sticks and they're all rotating, but it's it's a different mechanic. So how was it making that transition from assistant strength coach with the St. Louis Blues to the New York Mets? What, what was that like? I think when you kind of look at it and you look at strength and conditioning and athletic performance, there's a lot of core fundamentals that you kind of each athlete really needs to have and, and kind of the, the raw materials that they need. Um, when, when you look at each athlete and you're kind of looking at the overall picture, um, you know, if they're, they're deficient in certain areas, it, it's, it's going to show up on the field or on the ice. And, and it's important to, kind of know how certain strength qualities or, or speed qualities or imbalances in, in certain areas are going to affect their on ice on field performance or, you know, their, their injury risk. And um, it, I think, you know, a lot of the times people want to get caught up in, in sports specific training and it, it's kind of a, a hot term if you want to be an Instagram trainer or something like that. But at the end of the day, if you want to work in elite, elite sport, um, you need athlete specific training. Um, and, and you need to give the guys what they need and, and nothing that they don't. And in order to, in order to do that, you need to, you know, ha have a robust kind of testing and performance strategy moving forward. So I would say, it, you know, the way that you're going to train a, a baseball player to a hockey player, as far as lifting and things of that nature are, you're going to figure out what that athlete needs, and then you're going to train them from that. And, and the biggest thing is being able to talk the language of how it will your performance program work on field and how is that going to get them better or how is it going to you know at the end of the day make them more money so when it comes to the fundamentals are we talking about like biomechanics of joint action are they properly hip hinging let's say do they have proper ankle dorsiflexion and plantar flexion are you are you looking for the biomechanics of movement is it all more about his hip explosiveness or their power output how do you determine because it sounds like you've got a quite a few tools in your toolbox to assess an athlete yeah i, I mean 
when you look at, at baseball and you look at, at hockey, they're, they're ground-based sports, right? So everything in, in everything's going to be from the ground up. So you need to I, I go from every single, every single joint and go joint by joint and see how everything's moving and see if things are able to synergistically move and pattern in the way that, way that you want, right? Um, so if you're looking at a, a pitcher compared to a defenseman, right? Well, biomechanically, the way that they do their sport is different, but they may have very, very similar movement strategies off the, off the field that they need to address in order to stay healthy and, and improve performance, right? So the kind of the, when you're looking off, off ice or off the field, you're going to look at kind of, you know, it, one of the big things that I use, it utilizes force plates, right? And looking at that, or like force plates going to give you kind of that raw material for the athlete, right? And if you're looking at it and you see a deficiency and you use, you know, high speed, high resolution cameras, you're able to break down you know, kind of joint by joint and see where there may be leaking energy, see where may, they may have a deficiency and then attack it from there with, with you know, isometric testing or, or some other isokinetic testing at the joint that maybe you may look at when they're trying to synergistically put everything together and say a, a counter movement jump, right? Put that all together to make the plan for them. So I, I you know, you're not gonna go one thing or another, a, a full athletic performance, you know, plan needs to look at everything and how everything's able to synergistically work for the athlete. Okay. I'm feeling like a kid in the candy store right now. Cause you're speaking my language. We're talking about closed chain biomechanics. And when it comes to uh, just the lower body, let's say, because uh, many of the actions are, are the same. There's really, it boils down to two primary motions and that's landing on planet earth and pronation mechanics and closed chain biomechanics of how the body pronates, not just the foot, but how the absorption impacts mass, momentum, ground reaction force, and so on occur. But then you've got the other, the flip side, which is leaving planet earth, the supinatory response of supinating foot, ankle, knee, hip, and so on. So when you say joint by joint assessments, are you filtering in that kind of aspect of closed chain biomechanics ground, as you say, like both sports are going to be ground-based? Um, how is it that you're doing that? And is it three-dimensional that you're going up the chain? Do you have a screening that you use? And without giving away trade secrets, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the approach. Yeah, so I, when we're doing our, our kind of testing batter or regimen, we're going to look uh, joint by joint specifically in every pattern of the joint. So if you're looking at the ankle inversion, eversion, we're looking at dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, right? Um, we look at that isometrically and, and we look for, you know, imbalances from that. Right. And, and we know a lot of times with, with our athletes, especially our guys being in a boot for hockey, right. Their, their foot strength is not up to, to speed. Right. And if you're looking at kind of an eccentric deceleration asymmetry, a lot of times what ends up happening is you're looking at that eccentric breaking forces. If you're not able to have adequate dorsiflexion when you're going into the jump and you're trying to, trying to reverse that acceleration, you're, you're gonna have a lot of issues, right? And you're gonna maybe stay away from that, that side and, and that's gonna create a lot of issues up the chain, right? So from that, so you can just kind of looking at a lot of people say mobility, 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 but a lot of times people are tight because of you know, small intrinsic muscles that need to be strengthened over time and, and finding the correct thing to do where it's not you know, getting a green band and, and putting your foot side to side where you're actually looking at MVICs and, and you know, isometrically training those in those ranges and then putting them through patterns when they are strengthened and they, they feel that now. Um, 
So that's kind of, you know, the very, very base layer of, of like what we would do, but we go joint by joint. And then we look at the ankle, the hip, the knee, we, we'll look at flexion, we'll look at extension, we'll look at, you know, every single thing that we can possibly look at for these athletes. And a lot of times old injuries will come up, right? And then from that, we'll, we'll say, have you ever had, you know, an ankle sprain? And, and you know, you see that the ankle is a mess. And, and you know, a lot of times their their eccentric acceleration asymmetry is, you know, anywhere from 16 to 20 and you're, you know, they, they're in that kind of yellow zone and we're, we're trying to, to fix it from there or, or different things like that um, is kind of you know, where you're going to go with, with the program and, and where you can start to really create athlete specific programs from that. And then, you know, when you have those, those imbalances, a lot of times you're going to create a, a certain strategy in the way that you move. Right. And this is going back to just a simple counter movement jump where, you know, you know, are, are you someone who uses a lot of impulse or are you someone who uses a lot of, you know, stretch shortening and, and tendon type, type of strategy, right? You know, so where, where do you fit in with that? Or are you very, very balanced, you know, and, and trying to bring things up to, to kind of par for that so that you're not really, really stressing out one system to the other, you know, and, and that can all boil down to, you know, muscle muscle things and, and looking at, the, at the, the joints and saying, hey, you know, really, we think that if you're able to strengthen your, your ankles in, in this range, it's really, really going to help this one quality. And then that, that quality might help you. Um, so that's kind of where we're looking at. That's really encouraging to hear because, you know, from the history of our industry of strength conditioning within the athletic realm, it started out by, okay, if it was positional or it was uh, in, in regards to the position you play on a team, here's your program. This is what you're going to be doing. It was almost like a one size fits all for running backs in the NFL or defensemen mm -hmm. in the NHL. Right. And then we started starting to see that, oh, you know, if we need to treat them a little bit differently because this guy has a history of this or, or because of this injury that keeps recurring, they need to start bringing in correctives. So then the emergence of the corrective exercise began occurring. And I think people went a little bit too far on the, on the pendulum swing. And, and before you knew it, the entire program was made up of correctives and mm -hmm. we got away from doing actual strength conditioning, but now it's kind of getting, getting that pendulum to swing into the middle where you're saying everyone has an individualized program based on the athlete themselves. Granted, there's certain things for their position that they need to be responsible for, but unless we clean up the movements and start to load proper patterns or load the patterns properly, that their performance is, is not going to be to the level that we're, we're hoping it to be at that optimal point. Is that, is that essentially, is that an accurate statement? Yeah. So like a, a lot of times too, and you got to learn how to speak the, the language and the lingo of, of the sport itself. So let's just take it into account, you know, a defenseman, a defensive defenseman in hockey, right? There's over time, you know, you're able to see athletes who excel at their position have certain movement strategies and, and strength and speed qualities that will translate into the raw kind of materials that we're talking about on the force plate, right? And you may see another athlete who some, they say, you know, this athlete is slow or it takes them a while to get going, right? And you say, well, he's supposed to be a defensive defenseman, but these strength qualities that he has are, are not matching up with what you would want for a defensive defenseman, right? 
and then you say, okay, well, let's look, let's look at his screening, right? And we, we see that, you know, his, his whole body limb stiffness is, is very, very low, right? And his eccentric deceleration capacity is very, very low, right? But he, he's able to produce a lot of impulse. And then if you look at impulse, impulse is going to be something that is kind of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, having a high impulse with a long contraction time could be a slow athlete. You want to have a, a high impulse with less contraction time, right? So that's something that I think sometimes gets a little bit lost in translation with some people when they look at impulses where, you know, if you're not able to get the contraction time down with the greater impulse, you're not really doing the athlete a, a service. You may be slowing them down. Um, so you look at that and you see someone with high impulses and a long contraction time, we know that we want to get them quicker, right? How do you get them quicker? Well, you start looking at their ankles as far as different things and you create whole body limb stiffness through certain exercises in the weight room, right? And then you try to transfer that over onto the ice, right? With, with certain qualities as well. I'm getting a sense of a bar graph right now for each individual athlete where there's different elements and they're scoring at different levels and there is a certain kind of outline or profile for the most optimal performance for each individual. And this gives you kind of a needs analysis more or less as to what each, each person's going to require. Now you've, you've talked about the force plate and I actually, I'm, I've got my foot resting on my own force plate here. I use one for the work that I do, uh, but I don't use it in the same way that you do, I believe. I, I pretty much do static posture to find out where their mass is being managed over both feet and I'll have them walk over it so I get a better sense of what their gait mechanics are and where their mass travels based on the left foot and the right foot and so on. But it sounds like you have the force plate for other other episodes or other other events what is that you use your force plate for uh so well i mean in general what we're looking for is our force plate in season is going to be our daily screen um so we'll, you know we'll do jumping movements right and it's all going to be that the vertical force vector but um so we have 2d plates um so we're not going to get three-dimensional movement on those plates we're not going to see but we're not going to see what what possibly could happen if you have you know higher grade plates i guess but if we're looking you know at that we're looking at the, the vertical force vectors and we're gonna we'll look at you know basically we'll look at counter movement jumps right hands on hips and we'll look at a 10-5 you know pogo basically pogo jumps um kind of see that reactive strength element uh squat jumps what i've found with squat jumps is a lot of our athletes have trouble and um, holding that static posture and a lot of times a counter movement jump counter movement will happen at a, at a low amplitude and then it'll almost cancel it out so i haven't utilized the um the the squat jump as much as i would like because of the um, sensitivity to it and then it, it just doesn't end up working well i also like to to use the plates for um you know isometrics as well um specifically a, a belt squat isometric. And, and they're getting instant feedback. Is that, are they watching the screens as well? So that they're, it's kind of like a biofeedback system? Yeah, so, I mean, we have we have a great, great uh, force plate system with Hawken Dynamics in it. It's instant, right? So I think one of the, the biggest biofeedback things you can give to an athlete is jump height. Like they get that. They don't really care too much about the other things that you may be looking at. But you say, hey, 
I want you to jump high and fast, right? Do whatever you want to do as far as, you know, depth and things like that. So <clears throat> just say, hey, try to jump higher, you know? And then generally what I'll do is I'll, you know, tell them as far as that, hey, you know, this guy over here just jumped, you know, way higher than you on it, you know? And then they're like, well, I can jump higher than that guy, let's go. And then you start to build, you know, a little bit of competition, right? And then, you know, some guy comes over, he's like, well, how high did he jump? And it's their buddy, like, well, I'll jump higher than him. And they try and sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't, but, you know, try to drive competition in there too. And then from that, we'll kind of monitor it in season. We'll, we'll use the counter movement jump in season for, for our biggest monitoring tool. Because if we see something that, that's off in the counter movement jump over time, right, that's kind of that red flag for us. And then from that red flag, we may go into other areas that we had from our preseason testing as far as, you know, the, the isometric testing with joint by joint. Gotcha, gotcha. So you mentioned earlier too about talking the language and, and really uh, how do you unfold education into this process for, for a greater degree of buy-in with the, with the players. Now, you and I both grew up uh, in New England outside the Boston area. I think you were in the South, I was in the North, but we grew up, uh, at least I did, playing pond hockey and street hockey. I don't, did, did you grow up playing hockey at all? I, um, I, I played, I actually played in college at a division three school my freshman year, Salve Regina University. So I, I played all throughout, you know, pretty much my whole life. And we, we also played, you know, pond hockey, nonstop street hockey when the ponds were, were not frozen. So, you know, I played hockey my, my whole life. Okay. That's what I was wondering because uh, a lot of times we, we've got strength coaches going into a sport that they may not be familiar with, but, uh, and so to pick up a hockey stick without any familiarity is almost like picking up a poison needle, but in your case, not the case at all. You've been playing hockey for a while. So it must have been a little bit more natural to go into the St. Louis blues setting, or, or in this case, uh, Detroit Red Wings. Um, how, just out of curiosity, how are you received or how did you get that buy-in just from a, like for those strength coaches listening, like what advice could you give them when going into a new environment? It's funny. I actually, I had this conversation with, with another uh, coach yesterday, you know, just how, how you have to act in a professional setting, especially in elite sport going into um, going into it, right? So when I was hired, I was hired as a head strength coach for the Red Wings at, at 28 years old, right? And you got guys who are 35, 36 years old, and they've been in the league, you know, 15, 16 years, right? And they've been, they're used to doing some, they're used to doing their, their routine and, and what they have, right? And if you bring something new and you try to go in like a tornado and blow everything up, you are not going to be received well. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing is seeing, you know, how the organization operates right in, in your first year um, and, and going in and, and not trying to blow things up, but, but give suggestions, right. And, and build the trust with the athletes over time, build trust with the coaches, build trust with, with management, with the other trainers, with, with, with everything, because you go in and you start going in like a tornado saying that's wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Right. Like you are, you're going to be out sooner than, than you think. Right. Um, you know, I, I think maybe in, when I went into major league baseball, that, that was something where there's a lot of traditions as far as strength and conditioning and different things that, you know, you may not agree with, right? But you got to realize if you're in your, if you're in your first year, you need to build these relationships just in order to, to make some changes that you would want down the line. Um, 
So, you know, figure out what is your, your number one thing that you would like to implement in that year one that can help the athletes and you can show them that you're there to help them and then kind of move from there. And then year two, they start to you know, get more by and more by and more by. And then eventually you'll have the culture that you want, but it is a year by year kind of process that if you go in in that first year and, and you're trying to tell everyone how smart you are and, and how this is wrong and that is wrong, no one will listen to you. And those guys will shut you off quicker than, than you've ever thought. So picking up a book on diplomacy is not a bad idea then. Yeah, it's, yeah, for sure. You know, you, you, you need to take your wins where you can and you need to realize that, you know, nothing will ever be perfect in any setting. So, you know, figure out how to slowly build up over time. Yeah, that's the, that's the sentiment I get from a lot of strength coaches in professional sports these days is that the, the seasoned veterans, they, they know what works for them. And over the years, and we're talking multi-million dollar contracts that don't want to be upset. So they, they have a certain way of doing things and it's a little bit more of a challenge to try and implement some things with them compared to say the rookies or, or maybe even this case with you, you've got the taxi squad, which we haven't even brought up now. I mean, we're talking about, you went from, I think on your active roster, you got normally 23 players. Now you've got 29 because of COVID. What's, What's that like? And, and are the, the taxi squad themselves uh, for the D Detroit Red Wings without naming names or anything, um, you're bringing on some, some veterans and some, some rookies or what's the collection there? So for us, our, our taxi squad in the beginning was younger players who were waiting, their, their prospects who were waiting for the AHL season to start. So what we use that as is basically a um, extended training camp. Right. You know, we, we were training like it, it was still the off season it was at the end of that stage. And we were, you know, basically doing it as, as training, just get, getting ready for that AHL season. Uh, you know, as actually maybe two weeks into the, <laughs> the taxi squad kind of training program, we had five guys go on the COVID protocol list and, and they were out for two weeks. Right. So all of a sudden, those guys now became regular players for us. Um, and we had other, other veteran, you know, a minor league players come on. So like it's, it, it will vary. Um, and the, the biggest thing is making sure that you're, you're keeping those guys engaged and that, you know, you're not overdoing it at the same time, making, keeping them ready for when they need to play, because it, it can be hard for these guys to go out and just practice every single day, work out every day. And then, because they want to play, they're all competitors, right? So you need to find that balance, keep it fun, keep it entertaining, but make sure that you're getting good quality training in for those, for those players. Like as an example, we, we had a goalie who was on the, he's on the taxi squad and, you know, he's was on the tax. He's been on the taxi squad the entire year. And then, you know, we, we train and, and we make sure that he's getting exactly what he needs as we through all of our assessments and everything like that. And then all of a sudden the other night he was in the game. And he just played three straight games and he won two in a row and he hadn't played in, in two years. He hadn't, he hadn't, he hadn't won a game in two years and he had one start last year in the NHL. So, you know, you've got to keep them ready to go because you never know right now with, with how crazy the protocols and things like that are. You need to make sure that these guys are engaged and they're ready to go tomorrow because you never know. 
Yeah, you bring up a good point, which is detecting overtraining, which can be nebulous, right? It, it isn't just that uh, their strength levels are low. Maybe that's not it. Maybe their immune system's compromised. Maybe their, their sleep patterns are off. Maybe their attitude is a little bit angst. Or what kind of metrics do you use to detect overtraining, uh, hopefully before it actually really kicks in? Yeah, so um, our, a lot of our athletes wear aura rings, um, and a lot of them have, have given me permission to to track their, their sleep and their HRV and their resting heart rate, which is in the NHL, you can't, you can't, the team can't purchase sleep wearables for, for the athletes, right? But if they purchase their own and they want to give me access to it in order to, to better serve them, you know, it, it's allowed. So being able to, to utilize things like the, the aura ring to, to track sleep and over time, you can start to see trends in, in the athletes and know when to back off and know when to, you know, hit the gas um, per se. And we also utilize when the athlete gets in in the morning, we'll we utilize Omega waves as well to kind of see where the athlete is. So, but a lot of times if you, if you see that, um, you see the sleep, like you pretty much know what's gonna, the Omega wave will look like, right? And a lot of times with the Omega wave, when you're doing D, things like DC potential and other things like that, it can be anywhere from 48 to 72 hours of neural fatigue that will set in from the day before. So you never really know what you're quite going to get, but you can tell, you know, what you probably should do from someone's sleep and their HRV and their resting heart rate and, and their other body temperature is things like that. Um, so th th that's a big thing for us this year where, where our players have been pretty bought in because we're, we're in the middle right now of eight games in 14 days. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty important to know when you can hit the, the gas for our players and when you need to back off. And, um, that, that's a big tool that, that we've utilized. So let's say there's, there's a, a couple of players that are showing signs of overtraining. What does it mean when you say back off? Well, what, what would that look like? Is it just half the volume, no training for the day, go home, get rest? What, what are we talking about? And I know everyone's individual and different, but on average, what does it look like? So uh, one of the biggest things, if you're looking at, at our guys, um, if they come in into the facility and you know their their nervous system is a wreck, we see that their their HRV has significantly lowered from the night before. Their resting heart rate's gone up, right? We we know something's going on, and we have recovery protocols in place for for athletes um, the minute they walk in the door, right? And, and you know they'll <clears throat> they'll come in and, and we'll know what they need to do, and we we give them their sheet, and then you know off they go. We're not going to ask the athlete to, you know, do something that's very, very neurologically demanding, especially the day after a game. If their nervous system is shot, it, it makes no sense. We're not going to try We're not going to ruin them in the weight room because the reality right now is we're playing every other day and our guys are paid to play hockey, not to lift or to do anything. So a lot of mobility, a lot of res restorative actions that we have, we have a, a lot of recovery tools available to us. So, you know, we'll make sure that the guys get what they need. And a lot of it, and it's a lot of it comes down to the, the guy just doing it, but we have everything that they need when we see that, right? And we're not gonna push them to, to that outer boundary because they need to play. So there's float tanks and there's uh, other devices. What kind of restoration or recovery tools do you guys like to use? What are the go-tos? 
uh, contrast baths. We have a we have our own um, float tank. We have an ECP machine. Um, we have um, katsus. We have you know obviously massage therapists. We have you know we have the whole gamut of, of everything that that we would need as far as an athlete. So if they come in and you know they're in sympathetic overdrive from the night before, we we have a protocol for them to get through for that, right? Um, so that's, you know, we have pretty much everything available to the guys. It's basically comes down to them doing it and, and it's, it's there for them. And for this season, you know, it's condensed, obviously it goes from January to May and then the playoffs till maybe July 9th at the latest, I think, but you're talking 56 games in this year's regular season, which is quite condensed. Are you seeing the same patterns with your athletes this year? that you would normally on a, a pre or let's hope post COVID era? The same patterns as far as? Oh, like um, overtraining, uh, the, the stuff that we've kind of been talking about. Yeah, uh, rest it, of it, and so on. yeah so I mean, yeah, I think it was last year, our February was very dense, but generally you're gonna have, you know, one to two days in between games where the athletes are allowed to recover. So this year, you know, what we've seen is in times of condensed, the condensed schedule, you know, what, what we're seeing is we do get in-game data now. Um, so when we're using the in-game data and we're able to see, we're able to see, you know, what the athlete is doing in the game comparative to their norms. And, and a lot of times that that's very, very telling for, for what's going to happen the next day when they come into the facility or what's going to happen to their sleep or, you know, what's going to end up being sore or not. So we try to get ahead of that with, with certain protocols that we have in, in place um, for each guy on top of the recovery protocols would be physical modalities and mobility drills that we're going to do with the guys, depending upon what they've done from in the game the night before. And on top of that, for me, the biggest thing is, is what exercises to stay away from, depending upon what they've done the night before as well, because, you know, if you're going to, the guy has a high deceleration game and, you know, you're thinking a single leg RDL is a great tool and their groin's tight. It's probably not because they're probably going to try to get into that. Right. And, and you're going to add more stress onto something that's already been stressed to the max the night before. Right. So knowing what to do and what not to do is, is, is vital, especially in this season and kind of getting ahead of things. So what we saw was in the beginning of the year, um, you know, before we were able to build the bandwidth, because it, it takes time to, build individual bandwidths for each guy because we don't know what they're doing in, the, in a game for a month or so, right? As far as that, to get actual actionable data. So what we saw was, you know, a guy has a high, a high deceleration game and then two to three days later, now we're starting to get that, that groin tightness, right? Because it's the repetitive nature of, of going out and playing, right? And going out and practicing, right? So it's not so much acute, it's gonna kind of be that chronic always going out there and always kind of you know doing the same repetitive motion when you already had that super super high game comparative to your norms so that that's been something that's been really really telling it and being able to see that gotcha now most of most of the moves that you've spoken of are are closed chain uh, have you gotten away from open chain movements especially for like lower body or are there still like in terms of a percentage of the overall uh, program design, do you, you've mentioned isometrics, of course, and you've got dy dynamic loading, but 
when it comes to open versus closed chain, where do you guys lie with that? Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really too, too big on, on open chain. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's try, I try to, to keep everything kind of dynamic and, and keep everything, everything moving. Solid. Yeah. I was really hoping you'd say that to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then when it comes to conditioning on the ice, what does that look like compare? Obviously you're not going to be doing um, the, the same kind of conditioning protocol as you do in the gym, but how does, how does that look for you in, in regards to on ice training? What are your primary goals there that you want to achieve with the players? So I, I think in, in season, right. Um, when you're looking at, at on ice conditioning, um, if a player needs on ice conditioning, we'll do it at the end of the end of practice. And, you know, we'll, we'll kind of try to bring them back up so that their workload gets, gets to where it needs to be. So it's not, they're not getting too low on that kind of pendulum. And also as we talked before with, you know, if we're able to track their sleep and we're able to see things like a, a resting heart rate and an HRV, you can tell, you know, someone's aerobic fitness by how they're sleeping, right? It, and, and how they're, they're kind of doing it. They may be losing that kind of, that, that aerobic capacity just by, by seeing their resting heart rate get starting to get elevated, which could go with, with overtraining as well. So you need to kind of balance that, but you kind of see, see with that, how are they recovering, you know, between drills? What is their 60 second recovery heart rate time in between drills? Right. Or, or how, how is that curved if they're, if the drills allow for it, like seeing things like that and are they actually able to hit, you know, if we're looking for pure speed development, are they able to hit, you know, 90% of their max speed in a game, right. If they need to. And that's another thing when we look at in, in games and things like that, like a lot of times, if you're looking at speeds, if players are very, very smart, you know, and, and they know and they have a certain role, you know, they may not need to stop and start a ton, but when they need to go, they'll be able to hit it, right? And, and can be very, very telling as far as freshness to see the player's speeds over time, right? And, and are they actually able to accelerate to the, those speeds or are, there, are they tired? And, you know, all of a sudden you see everyone is, is low and they're not able to actually accelerate to those speeds. So seeing things like that as far as, you know, on ice development will, will give us a, a pretty clear picture of, of what the, the athlete needs. Sure. So when we talk about speed development, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the NFL right now and the fastest players on the field are typically the cornerbacks that, that guard the wide receivers. Everyone thinks, Oh, the wide receivers have to be the fastest, but in fact, the corners are slightly ever so slightly faster. And there is some speculation that a potential is because they have to run backwards and, and maybe there's something to that backward kind of running that allows for greater speed development. So carrying that over into the NHL, I know I'm reaching for, for straws here, but I'm wondering, like, is there, first of all, is there a position that is typically faster than the others on the ice? Is it the forward? Is it the center? Is it, is it the defenseman? Who is it? I know it's not the goalkeeper, so you won't have to go there. But who's, who's the fastest typically on ice when it comes to positions? Is there one? I wouldn't say that there's a, a fastest position. I, I would say that um, if we, we do some on-ice sprint testing, so you'll see at the different splits, you know, 
athletes that excel at, at the different splits as far as speed and, and their positions and, and what you would want. But I wouldn't say if you're looking, I guess this gets into the, the breakdown of speed, exactly what, what you're, you're trying to look for, right? Are, yeah. are you looking for that, that first five meters? Are you looking for, you know, the accelerative strength speed abilities? Or are you looking for maximal velocity and max speed that you get into a, in a game situation? I don't think our players ever truly hit their maximal velocities of their true potentials because of, you know, it's the just, size of the rink and just kind of the game. But, you know, I think different um, positions will have different speed and strength qualities that they need um, to excel. And this goes back to those raw materials on the force plate. Again, you're able to see pre pretty easily, you know, why guys are considered fast or slow, and then you can go from there. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that a single position is, you know, faster than another, but there are certain splits that you would want a defenseman to be better at. You would want a, a winger to be better at, and you would, you know, centers just kind of do it, do it all. So you want to be a center to be pretty balanced, you know? Sure. Sure. So then just to throw it out there, backwards skating, I know that hockey players are skating in all sorts of directions and so on, but do you really work on just the opposites in order to go fast forward? Do you want them to go fast backwards? Yeah, we, we don't test it, but, but it's an important quality to have it especially for, I'd say, a defenseman sure. <laughs> more than a forward, right? And yeah, then if sure. you're looking at, if you're going to look at, at skating backwards, now we're going to look at some, you know, again, you're going to look at similar things joint by joint, you're going to look at some mobility issues too, because if you're going to skate backwards, you know, you're not just going to skate backwards the whole way. You're going to have to open up and pivot one way or the other and then accelerate to, to get to wherever you need to go to. So I kind of think as far as backwards skating, you know, you need to be able to skate backwards, but you need to be able to have the mobility to open up and rotate and pivot and do whatever you need to do in that kind of realm. And all that pivoting and so on makes me kind of consider the vestibular and visual systems. Do you do any types of drills, skills, or whatnot to enhance vestibular reactions or, or just clean things up uh, for, for better balance, for better awareness, spatial awareness, and so on? We'll, we'll do some, I wouldn't say it's a pillar really, um, but, you know, we'll do some, like if, you know, we're in between sets with a guy or we're doing some type of speed training or whatever, and we just want them to, you know, calm down and, you know, do some, some certain, you know, maybe you call it hand-eye drills or whatever, you know, A, it's fun for the guys and, and B, it actually allows them to not move because they always want to move. <laughs> So, we, you know, we will kind of throw those in there um, for sure. And then you, there's so much tech at your disposal. Uh, and and you've obviously we've talked pretty extensively about the force play, but also the ring. Are there other devices, whether you have them now or you're wanting them or you currently, you know, you're utilizing them? What other tech are you really interested in, in uh, just grabbing on and utilizing? Yeah, so, I mean... We, we have our, our heart rate monitors, obviously, with that, that we use. Um, we'll break down intensities from that from for the coaches in practice, what coaches expected, what it was, you know, what each drill kind of elicits as far as that. But it's important to know when you're looking at that, too, like if you have less players out there, the work to rest could be different. So it could, could kind of skew things, but we'll, we'll get intensities from that. So we utilize heart rates, um, I think, you know, 
um, the RFID chips. So obviously you can't use GPS indoors, but you know the RFID chips with, with the clear sky and things like that would be something, you know, that would be valuable to match it up with, with the game data that we have um, for practices to see, you know, are we practicing like we're playing? Um, and then, you know, overall intensities of practice because we have the physiological data on practice and but we don't have kind of that external load data on practice, which would be very, very helpful. Um, you know, I, I utilize the, the 1080 sprint and the, um, the 1080 synchro pretty, pretty extensively. Um, not so much the sprint in season. I will use it with, with taxi squad guys. Uh, we actually have our own, we have our own sheet inside of our arena our own practice sheet. So, oh, nice. you know, sometimes if a, we have a taxi squad player who hasn't played in a, in a long time and, uh, you know, there are some of them haven't played in a long time, we'll, uh, you know, instead of doing, if they, they have a light load in the morning, you know, we'll, we'll do some at night during the game, I'll be able to literally roll up the garage door and walk right out to our ice and use it there. So 1080 sprint and the 1080 synchro ha has been really, really huge as far as, um, you know, isokinetic strength and being able to do some loading with, with guys who might not be able to load very, think that they can't load very heavily in season, but then you're able to, to, to set a speed limit and have them actually get some true maximal strength for in season as well. So that, that's been a, a really, this year has been a game changer for us as far as, you know, actually getting good quality maximal strength work in, in the guys not even really knowing that they're doing that they're just they're trying to, to push through it so that that's been a, a huge one for us as well that's really interesting because you know for for i don't know 25 years or so we've been really into the external load resistance training with some movements that are reminiscent of of power lifting and so on like squats and cleans whatnot but but there's so many other ways to, to, to harness strength within the athlete. And it's really nice to hear of these other elements that are coming into play. So we're not so biased toward quickly grabbing dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells, or whatnot. And, uh, and well, it's just refreshing to hear, I guess, is what I'm trying to say there. Now, yeah, I, I, would, I would say, though, we don't, we don't shy away from barbells, kettlebells, or dumbbells at all. It, it's when, you know, when we need to when we, we need to do our, our maximal strength work in, and we know that a certain athlete can't be loaded a certain way. The, the 1080 has been very, has been very, very helpful as far as being able to load guys who have lower back issues or things like that, you know, right. and get good quality strength work and, and they don't necessarily get sore from it as well. So, and you're able to actually see their average force over that period. And uh, what I've done, and this has been kind of an end of one on, on myself was, you know, I, I did a very, very heavy um, bilateral safety bar squat, right? And I looked at the average force, average forces on my force plate, and then I did a single leg squat off of my 1080 and looked at the average force and, and combined the two for the bilateral deficit to look at, you know, if I'm if I'm squatting and, and I'm using my gym aware and I'm at, that's another thing that, that we utilize too, gym aware, and, you know, we're at 0.4 meters per second right? And I'm at that load and I'm at 0.4 meters per second in the isokinetics on a single leg squat, you know, am I, are my forces comparable? Or are they not? Because at the end of the day, you, you need to load your athletes. You can't, if you want a robust athlete, especially in the NHL, you need to load them, right? Yeah. And they need to be able to express force. So if you know, you're on the, if you think that you can't really guess with these type of things, you need to kind of have some sort of answers for guys when they, when they want them. 
Um, so, you know, I just did a, a little study on myself and I saw, you know, it was pretty comparable, you know, with that, with the 0.4 and at, I believe it was 20, 20, 20 kilograms, um, you know, in, in the concentric at 0.4, it was pretty comparable to a 385 pound bilateral safety bar squat. Nice. As far as the average forces. So, you know, that's me wearing a harness with, with, <laughs> with the synchro and doing a single leg squat and only having, you know, 45 pounds essentially. Oh, that, that's interesting. That's very cool. So is that something that you'll be utilizing with the guys a little bit more then? Yeah, I, I do. I, that I do utilize a ton with, with yeah. that. So, you know, and, and, you know, you're able to see the average forces and you're saying, Hey, you know, you just push this, it's comparable to this amount on a, on a squad. And they're like, seriously. Yeah. You know, without a tremendous compression down the spine too, especially for like those guys that do have low back issues. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and then you're actually able to, to teach them, you know, a lot of times too, when we look at athletes who have, have those lower impulses and, and, you know, they're, they're more, you know, people might call them high velocity athletes or they have, you know, higher, they use their tendons a lot and things like that, their stretch shortening cycle, you know, you can literally make them drive through that whole kind of that, whole, that whole range of motion in a squad where they might not go through a full range of motion. They don't know how to apply force over that time. You know, you can almost slow them down as well and force them to actually express force throughout that whole range, as opposed to, you know, just doing something where you, you don't know what they're going to do with it. Okay, so I've got one more question because uh, with high-velocity athletes, you know, and you're mentioning that it's uh, primarily in the tendons, you know, like kangaroo legs, right? They're just yep. really down below and they've got huge hips, but they get that, that power and that explosiveness, that speed from mainly the tendons. And so, of course, fascia being, I won't say the buzzword, but it's, it's become a very commonplace term and utilized within our strength conditioning industry when it comes to, say, foam rolling, SMR stuff with with fascia, do you base, uh, do you happen to base foam rolling targets uh, on that concept of high velocity? Okay, you're going to target the tendons more than you're going to target the muscle belly or, or when it comes to foam rolling, do you have any specific protocol or approach that you utilize with the athletes? Uh, for foam rolling, not, not as much. Um, I just, I don't know how effective it actually is at, at creating tissue change, um, no, you know, no. over time, um, you know, so I, I think foam rolling is something that, you know, the, the athletes do because it makes them feel good. Um, you know, so really, really no, no in that regard. Yeah. I'm just thinking in terms of enhancing circulation, just by some pumping mechanism to get in there, that tactile, like you don't have the massage therapist on every, on every athlete yeah. prior to it, but is there, you know, is there something to that, I guess, is what, where I'm going. If by targeting the tenderness areas for the high velocity athlete, does that show any different in outcome? Just, you know, something just bouncing inside my head right now. So not that you have to run with it. I'm not asking you to do homework and get yeah. back to me yeah. by any stretch, Rob. But <laughs> anyway, well, this has been great. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. I, I really had a fun time talking and learning quite a bit. And I know you got uh, quite a few more games to get into the playoffs. So I wish that, that more W's than L's for sure. And uh, in, enjoy your time in sunny Florida while you're down there. But, uh, but at least Detroit's getting nicer now this time of year, isn't it? Yeah, it was, 
I don't think it was pretty warm when we left. I, I don't really remember now, but it might have been in the, the 50s, so that's pretty warm. Yeah, well, it, these days it's just uh, whatever four walls you find yourself in, you don't even know what, what city you're in because you're traveling so much. So I appreciate you taking the time with me right now and, uh, and being on Zealous. And, and honestly, I wish you well, and, and thanks for being on. That's a wrap for the Zealous Podcast. Thank you, Rob Campbell and the Detroit Red Wings. Next week, we're going to kind of go down south and out to the southwest to the Anaheim Ducks and speak to Christoph Wies, the assistant strength coach there. Find out what he's doing with the NHL players in the southwest. And you could have a chance to win a massage gun by Perform Better. So tune in next week to Zealous Podcast. For now, have a great week.